Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. And the Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll fill your flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. It's made in the USA, and it comes with a lifetime warranty. www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. As motorcyclists, we're totally exposed to the elements. It's one of the things that makes motorcycling an incredible experience. But when the weather turns on us, we're sometimes forced to deal with riding in extreme conditions. And that's when a little knowledge and understanding of the elements and how we ride will go a long way in avoiding problems. Today's episode is part one of a two-part series on riding in extreme conditions. Coming up first, we have David Huff dealing with riding in the wind, and then Grant Johnson riding in the rain. As well, we've got a great story about travel, adventure, and how by just changing the questions you ask yourself, you can totally change the outcome of your adventure. My name's Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. we got a good one for you. I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed March. Glenn Hedstead. Dr. Gregory W. Fraser. Dave Barr. Michelle Lampier. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schmutz. Brett Tack. Zoe Cano. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Ross. Jeremy Creaker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Wick. Seth Simon. Elizabeth Martin. Hey, I'm Carol DeBell, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using their unique strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. And that has gained them a top reputation for tough, reliable gear. www.greenchiliadv.com That's www.greenchiliadv.com The Motobreeze chain oiler is powered by wind pressure that automatically adjusts for speed. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers oil to your chain with a felt pad that's mounted on your swing arm, which eliminates the problems of exposed nozzles near your sprockets. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets and forget about the messy spray oil. www.motobreeze.com. That's two eyes in there. www.motobreeze.com. You know, when I think about riding a motorcycle, I often imagine riding along on a windless day, the warm sunshine streaming into my visor, wafts of road-generated heat pulsing my jacket as I ride along. But sometimes the sun sort of slips behind the clouds and the conditions are, well, let's say less than perfect. But hold on now, this doesn't mean it has to be bad. No, with, with some planning, careful thought, and even some practice, this little hiccup in the weather can likely turn into just a good story. This is part one of our two-part series on riding in extreme conditions.
David Huff is an award-winning motorcycle journalist. He's the author of several motorcycle books, including the bestseller Proficient Motorcycling. And we asked David to share some of his knowledge on dealing with the effects of wind on our rides. David, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Thanks. Great to have you on. And of course, we're talking about extreme riding and wind and dealing with wind as in um, just riding in high winds, but also dealing with those gusty times that, that are um, probably the worst of conditions. And I know we can always have the choice of not heading out to ride in the wind, whether that's probably our first one. But often I think what it is, is we get caught in the wind. You know, you head out for the day and you end up getting caught in it. So we need some some ideas, concepts and tips, of course, to cover that off and, and uh, help make us better, more efficient riders. So are we going to start with, um, with the concept of riding in the wind? Yeah, I think that um, there, there are two main issues with riding in winds. Uh, one of these is just control of the motorcycle, and the other is in situational awareness. And uh, I'd, I'd like to start off with uh, roll control. We, we often talk about motorcycling as we're going to lean the bike. Well, when the wind slams into the side, you know, something happens, and um, if what you're doing is riding your motorcycle sort of by uh, automatic control, so using your, your memory and your muscles, just kind of doing it, and you get hit by a wind gust, uh, you may not understand what's going on and you may not know what it is you need to do to correct it. So I'd like to talk a little bit about roll control. Uh, never mind lean, what we're talking about here is causing the contact patches to go one direction so that the top of the bike goes the other. And we cause the motorcycle to roll. And the term comes from aviation or, or boats. You know, uh, roll is different from lean. And um, so how do we control roll? Well, basically, you're going to steer the contact patch to control roll. There's a lot of things you can do to cause the motorcycle to do things, uh, but if we don't understand what it is we really need to do in a in a crisis situation when something suddenly happens, um, then we we don't understand what it is that we need to do, and we can't make the motorcycle do what we want it to do, and that's very frustrating. So how do we control roll? Well, you steer the bars opposite the direction you want to roll. So if the gust hits you from the right side and the motorcycle wants to roll over to the left, you need to counteract that by pushing hard enough on the grips towards the right, pushing on the right grip, pulling on the left grip, to force the contact patches to shoot way over and then rebalance the machine in a, in a, uh, a rolled condition, which is not going to feel normal because when you're traveling in a straight line, the motorcycle wants to self-balance itself and the, uh, uh, and the tire contact patches are part of that equation. But when the motorcycle is rolled over onto, onto one side of the tire, um, you're going to have to hold a strong push to keep the motorcycle rolled over. So, uh, so that's part of the issue. For people who, who just kind of do it, you, you get on a motorcycle and you learn to balance and you learn to control things, and and your subconscious who remembers what it is it needs to do to make that happen. And that's fine for the normal situation. But what happens when, let's say, you exit a tunnel and there's a strong gust from your left? There's just a really powerful wind hits you from the left. It wants to blow the motorcycle right off the road to the right. And what you need to do to prevent that from happening is you need to roll the motorcycle over 
into the wind. You need to roll it over to the left. So you need to really get a grip on those bars and, and shove and pull and do whatever's necessary to steer the contact patch so far to the right that the motorcycle rolls over into the gust. And then, of course, uh, if you go through the gust uh, and suddenly there's no wind pushing you over, you need to straighten the machine up again. So if you leaned over to the left into the wind and then the wind ceases, what you need to do is to get the motorcycle rolled to the right which you would do by steering the contact patch upwind to the left, or we're going to push on the right grip until the motorcycle straightens up again. So people who don't comprehend that it's pushing on the grips and steering the front wheel that causes the motorcycle to roll are not going to be able to react as quickly as needed to, to respond to a gust. Now, we did a, a full episode on counter-steering, which what I would recommend if the listener hasn't heard it, go back and listen to that again, and we'll put a link in the show notes to this one about it. Um, but that explained counter-steering, and you went and we talked extensively about it. But the thing is, without counter-steering, when it comes to wind, what's going to happen is, at the, the very best, you're going to be able to maybe stay on the road, but you're you're going to be all shaken up. You're going to stiffen up as a rider. It's um, The whole thing sort of goes south at that point, doesn't it? Yeah, if you are not prepared to respond to a wind gust, if it's just a shock to you that suddenly something happens um, and and you don't push on the grips hard enough to roll that bike over to where it needs to be to correct, um, you can, in fact, get blown off the road. You know, and, and without getting too much into counter-steering, the, the reason I think it's so important that we understand these these concepts of counter-steering, there's a lot of people who just say, well, I don't worry about it, I just ride. But like you said, it's those it's those times, and in particular, we're talking about wind here, that you will absolutely need to understand uh, what counter-steering does. But I think people get sort of freaked out about it, you know? They they listen to it and they think, oh, it's, it's very confusing, especially if you haven't done a lot of riding. Yeah, I think that... Um, uh, a lot of people can just get down the road if what they do is just get on the bike and do it and their muscle memory, if you will, or your, your subconscious takes over and learns how to do that. The problem is the subconscious, number one, can't think into the future. And number two, the subconscious can't do anything it hasn't done before. So if you haven't really ever had to push hard on the grips to really cause the motorcycle to roll over, your subconscious can't do it. You'll think you'll think lean, lean, and the bike isn't leaning. Uh, so I think it's important to understand that, that it's for those uh, abnormal situations, those non-normal situations that you must learn better control skills. Um, if you only ride in the best of conditions and, uh, uh, you know, and you're happy with your riding, fine. But if you're out touring the world, uh, you're going to run into non-normal situations. You're going to run into strong headwinds and crosswinds and gusts and, and all sorts of things. And so, um, if, you know, if you don't want life to be too exciting, uh, you know, then you must learn how to control roll. Um, and um, uh, there are practice exercises that you can do, but I think intellectually you must understand that you can't depend upon your subconscious to do it for you. In an emergency, you must take over. You must wrest control from your subconscious and say, okay, I don't care what you think you're doing, but what we're going to do is we're going to roll the bike to the left as, you know, as rapidly as we can or to the right or whatever. So counter steering is, is the number one way to deal with the effects of wind then. I mean, that, that's the, the first one. If you don't have that, you've got nothing. 
Yeah, absolutely. If you're if you're not aware that controlling role uh, is a is a matter of steering the grips, um, you know, steering the front wheel, then um, you're not going to get there. Okay. What about other things, David? I mean, what about um, shifting your weight, um, weighting the pegs, that sort of thing? Good idea. So let's say that you're uh, you're heading across uh, the prairies of Saskatchewan. Uh, they have prairies there, don't they? It's all prairies, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and, uh, and you encounter the, uh, the typical wind from the southwest, and it's just blasting from your left side, you know. And so you keep pushing on the left grip, and you keep leaning that bike over, and, and uh, my gosh, it's taking a lot of energy. Um, because what you're doing is you're trying to steer, you're trying to balance the motorcycle in a straight line with it rolled over, and it, it wants to turn, but you're not going to let it. So what you can do to help is you can shift your weight in the saddle. So you're going to lean the bike over to the left, or you're going to roll left. What you can do is um, you can shift your butt to the right side of the saddle, um, you know, to help compensate for that. So um, you can use your uh, your body to help compensate. You can also brace yourself on the machine to better be able to push or pull. Um, when you think about it, you're sitting in the saddle and you're pushing on the grips. And um, it may not be obvious, but if you're going to turn the front wheel to the left, you're going to push on the right grip and you're going to pull on the left grip. Well, the body reacts to this by bracing itself. So what is it that you're going to push against? If you're going to pull on the grip, what's preventing that pull from just pulling your body up? Um, so if you have your legs braced in a good position so that, um, so that, you know, your knees are against the tank and your, and your legs are braced against the foot pegs and your butt is solid and in the saddle, um, you know, then the, the pressure has a place to go to so that you, when you steer, you can steer accurately. Ergonomics have something to do with this. Um, it's, it's best to steer with the muscles in your arm rather than the muscles in your back because the muscles in your arms uh, have finer tuning. So what you want is ergonomics that have your arms slightly bent when you're sitting in a normal position in the saddle. So when your arms are, are holding the grips, you want it to be comfortable, but you want to have enough movement so that your arm bends at the elbow rather than, than trying to shift your shoulder around the steer. Now, when you're talking about that and positioning yourself like that, you're not talking about getting tense. What you're talking about is, is being prepared, being in sort of an attack position, I guess it's often referred to. But you still want to maintain a loose grip, don't you? Well, you, you better not maintain too loose a grip because things can happen very suddenly. Uh, but what you want to, to be prepared for actually is what, what you can predict might happen. So here's where we move from being able to control it by reacting. The, the gust hits you and you do something. Um, like any situation when you're riding a motorcycle, say, in traffic, if you're not aware of what's going to happen, uh, then you can't be prepared for it. And so it, it can be very nervous and use a lot of muscle power and a lot of brain power if all you're doing is reacting to what's going on rather than predicting what might happen. Well, uh, how do we predict wind? Well, actually... Wind uh, follows the rules of nature. So, for instance, uh, let's say that you're riding through a cut in, in the road. you got a bank on your right and you got a bank on your left, and the wind is blowing from your right. Which way do you think the wind will hit the motorcycle? 
No, from well, depending how how high the bank is, but you can get a low pressure in there. It could hit it from the other side. Yeah, what happens is the wind goes over the top of you, hits the opposite bank on your left, and curls back and hits you from the left side. And so you're saying, well, how can this be? I thought it was a wind from the right. I'm all prepared for a wind hitting me from the right, and the wind hits you from the left. And some people are very frustrated by this. So it helps to kind of comprehend what wind does. Um, One very important uh, technique is understanding that when you're riding upwind, that uh, wind will ricochet off or reflect off of headlands. So let's say that you're riding, uh, well, let's say you're riding the Fraser Canyon and you're heading north and, um, and the wind is blowing from the northwest. Well, when you round a bluff on your left, you can expect a sharp blast reflecting off of that bluff and hitting you from the left side. If the wind were coming from the other way, you could expect that the wind will reflect off of the bluff. So let's say you're riding through the Columbia Gorge and the wind is typically from the west and you're riding towards the west. So you're riding upwind and you got a lot of buffeting from the wind, but there are tunnels along Highway 14 on the Washington side. So you exit a tunnel and suddenly, bam, the wind hits you really, really strong from the right side and blows you across the road. Well, we can predict this. You can predict that any time that you round a corner, that the wind is going to be hitting the bluff and then and then reflecting or bouncing off the bluff and blowing off at an angle. So it shouldn't be a surprise when you round a headland uh, to your right and suddenly get hit by a wind from your right. You can actually predict this in advance and uh, and add a little pressure to the grip to get the motorcycle leaned over and, and uh, you know, roll towards the right upwind even before the gust hits you. Um, so being able to predict what wind does is important. So um, years ago, I was riding through the Yakima Valley and uh, the, the main highway was under construction. And so they had detoured through the foothills. So we were going down little farm roads, which go up and down hills and across little valleys. And um, I saw uh, an 18-wheeler coming from the east towards me, and the wind was blowing more from the north. And um, so I thought, okay, there's going to be a wind blast when that truck passes me. Well, I had no idea that that truck was pushing a bow wave of wind. And just as soon as I got abreast of that truck, I was hit by a gust that was probably 100 miles an hour or something like that. It, It bent my windshield back. It, it it grabbed the visor of my helmet, flipped it up, pulled the helmet bar up in front of my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> and I was quite paranoid for quite a few miles after that. But the point is that you need to be prepared for that. So in such a situation, if that were to happen again, number one, I would be tucked in um, at, you know, a, a few yards before the truck passes you upwind you can get your head down on the tank, you can get your your feet braced, you can get a good grip on the bars, you know, so that at least it doesn't get pulled out of your grasp. So uh, a big part of uh, managing wind is to understand what it's doing and be prepared for that. Uh, we We can look at things even like buildings and billboards and bridge abutments and trees, and wind will curve around such things in a very predictable manner once you understand how wind works. 
anytime you're overtaking a, a tractor trailer, that can happen, can it? They, they always push that bow wave. There's always that that uh, low pressure zone beside, beside the truck if you're down on the downwind side. And, and even if you're not, there tends to be less wind pressure as you're going up alongside of that a lot of times. And then once you go past that front, you like you said, that bow wave or that pressure that it's built up in front as it's pushing the air out of the way can be a bit of a surprise. It's uh, probably a good idea next time you're out riding in the rain, to just watch uh, what the wind does in front of trucks because you can't see what wind does, but if it's full of water, you can. So when a truck is uh, either passing a truck in the rain or or a truck is heading towards you in the rain, uh, bear in mind which way the wind is coming from and then just watch which way that spray goes. And you can get a pretty good idea of, of what the wind tends to do around trucks. But yes, they do push a huge bow wave if, uh, I can call it that, a bow wave of air ahead of the truck. It's trying to displace that air. And uh, and air does move in in very predictable ways once you understand what it is you're looking for. Now, what about lane position? Are there advantages to choosing a particular spot in a lane when you're, when you're dealing with a side wind? Well, there are a couple of hazards with trying to pick a lane position. They'll make things better. I think that... Um, Number one, of course, uh, try and stay away from opposing traffic in any situation where you might be blown across the center line. But I think the key here is uh, being able to instantly, as quickly as possible, roll that bike over upwind to, uh, to control the machine from drifting and secondarily to be able to roll it back after the gust ceases to keep yourself more or less in the lane. So I think that... Um, uh, you know, when you're talking about very high winds, there was a situation where I was riding in north central Oregon. And I'd gone over a couple of passes, and I looked at the valley ahead of me, and this was in the spring, I suppose, uh, May or so. And um, I saw what uh, what looked strangely like maybe tinfoil, you know, huge cloud of tinfoil going through the air. And I thought, what the heck is that, you know? So as I went down into the valley, I had just passed a a highway uh, gravel pile, and suddenly this thing hit me. And what it was is the the wind was blowing uh, sleet sideways at about 80 knots or so. And when I hit that, uh, it wouldn't have made any difference which position of the lane I was in. It, It instantly pushed me downwind, which happened to be across the road to my left. So um I braked and made a quick downwind turn and sped back to the gravel area and literally laid the bike down in the lee of the gravel pile and hunkered under it and, and held on. And it was blowing so hard that the wind would blast through and just take all the water in a mud puddle and just blow it out, you know. <laughs> and and we were rattled pretty good for about 10 minutes or so, and then this thing passed. And it was sort of like, what happened? You know, well, the the clues were there for me. You know, when you see something horizontal out there in the in the uh, in the environment, what that indicates is wind that's blowing sideways. And if you can see it, you're lucky because that means it's got ice crystals or water or 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 leaves or dust or something in it that will give you a clue what's going on. But if you get hit by a sudden gust, um, it's capable of 
knocking the bike down. It's it, The gust can be so powerful that it can be more powerful than the traction you have available. And I know of people who have literally been blown off the road. Their tires sliding sideways, you know. I know I've been in situations where the wind is so strong that the bike is literally leaned over and I'm thinking this must look ridiculous to someone behind me, how, how far I'm leaned over into the wind here. And of course, the other thing that runs into your mind then is I'm looking ahead for, is there any spot where this wind is going to stop quickly? Because at that point, at that That's angle, right. I'm going to be doing a massive turn. Exactly right. That's the point of looking ahead to the uh, to the curvature of the environment that you're riding into, the, the situational awareness thing, so that you can predict what the wind will do. If you're not aware that the wind is going to change direction when it goes around a billboard or a building or a tree or a, or a hill, you know, then you you may find yourself in more than one panic situation. So the more you can predict what you think the wind is going to do. So you're riding along all leaned over, let's say to the left, wind is blowing from your left and you get the bike leaned over as far as it'll go. And, you know, and you're thinking, boy, this looks ridiculous. And then you look up ahead and you realize that, that there's a, um, uh, a huge hill there, <laughs> you know, there's a cliff ahead and uh, it would be safe to predict that when you go behind that cliff, not only will the wind be deflected, uh, it may actually hit you from the right. Mm-hmm. You know, so you need to be prepared to really roll that motorcycle to the right as you go behind this obstruction. And once you learn to do this, uh, begin to predict wind, then you'll say, gee, I, you know, uh, I'm fortunate to be able to control this because if you're not aware of what's going to happen before you get there, it may be too late. You mentioned about the about getting uh, sudden uh, side winds from storms or from a, a rainstorm coming through. That's one thing to watch for, isn't it? Because anytime you see one of those big clouds, and especially if you're in an open area, um, anywhere, you know, central United States or, or central Canada or even in South America, if you see a uh, that big cloud where you can, uh, you can almost see the rain coming down from it, that is a good indication. As soon as you feel that temperature change, you've got to expect there's going to be wind associated with that and probably coming down and going out in 360 degrees. Yeah, so, uh, of course, aviation studies these things, and they have what they call microbursts. But what we're really uh, what we're really talking about for motorcycling here is, you know, a storm front or a storm cell that sits over an area. Uh, my wife and I were traveling years ago down in, in uh, Utah, and we were sitting in a restaurant having coffee, and suddenly we heard people scraping chairs, and people started leaving the restaurant in droves. <laughs> so everybody was leaving. We said, what? So I looked up, and to the south was this huge, big, black cell. You know, I mean, one of these things where it's just pitch black. You can see this storm cloud rolling in in a big wave coming towards you. And people were saying, I'm getting out of Dodge because this is, you know, this is going to be bad. You know, this could tear roofs off houses and that sort of thing. So and, when, we, and when the locals get up and run, that's when, when you know. When the locals <laughs> get up and run or, or conversely, when the locals go into uh, a building and hide, yeah. you might want to do likewise. So <laughs> we hopped on the bike and headed out to the east, you know, and uh, ran through some strong winds. And we actually ran out of the storm. Uh, but uh, it uh, things like that can be gruesome. 
David, I just want to go back for a minute because we've talked a couple of times and I've said something about low pressure and whatnot. It's mm-hmm. probably good if we give a good explanation of exactly what that is because if you're not into this and you haven't thought it through, you might not understand about this low pressure behind objects. Yeah, well, you think about a think about a 747 taking off. You know, a 747, I don't know what those things weigh, but there's it's a lot of weight full of people and fuel and, you know, uh, electronics, and it lifts off the ground. Well, what makes it lift up? Well, it's the pressure differential between the top of the wing and the bottom of the wing. So uh, the same thing can happen when a truck goes by. There can be a pressure differential between the upwind side of the truck and the downwind side, or between the front of the truck and the back of the truck. And so what we're talking about is, uh, you know, maybe – the pressure wave where we might have, you know, uh, I don't know if we could put numbers to it, but but a high pressure, uh, you know, like we think about pressure in a tire, low pressure would be 10 pounds and high pressure would be 80 pounds. You know, so the front of the truck has 80 pounds of pressure, you know, and the back of the truck has 10 pounds. So that's the that's the low pressure or we might think of it as the vacuum that sucks things along. Have you ever tucked in? Well, I. Okay, I'm not going to ask you to commit yourself, but I've been, I was riding through the Columbia Gorge one time. The wind was howling from the left, and I was pushing as hard as I could go and just hardly moving. I'm getting buffeted and pushed around and shoved here and there, and I, I didn't want to just stop and try and wait because in the Columbia Gorge, it's going to blow until 4 in the afternoon, you know. So along came a guy with a uh, – he, he was towing a, <clears throat> a mobile home. Uh, well, it was like a modular. He was towing half of a modular, so this thing is 10 feet wide. And I don't know what kind of horsepower he had in that tractor, but he was pulling this thing upwind, you know, at 60 miles an hour. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And I said, hey, that's for me. So I tucked in behind him, you know, into the into the low pressure. And suddenly, you know, the motorcycle is speeding up because now I'm not I'm not pushing the headwind anymore. It, it ticked him off. I was I was on the CB, and he said, "Where the blankety blank did that motorcycle go?" <laughs> <laughs> and I said, "I'm right behind you, buddy." And he said, "Well, you watch yourself." <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I there was no way he could bring that thing to a stop in a hurry. But you you can get caught by things like tire shards coming up <laughs> from under the wheels. Oh, that's what I was going to say. I mean, I'm glad you mentioned that because that is a that is something that I think a lot of motorcyclists have discovered, and and I think we've probably all tried it. You pull right up there, and and that does definitely illustrate the low pressure. Where that as soon as you get up there, you're actually drawn ahead. You can you can back off the throttle, and you just be oh yeah, you just sucking. be sucked yes. But you're but right the, the downside is when that tractor trailer who can't move around on the road runs over a tire that was in the middle of the road, that's yeah, going to take you out. Up or a board or a dunnage yeah. or, you know, yeah. It's extremely, extremely dangerous. And, and I really think it's just absolutely not worth it. I mean, it's yeah. a, it's the well, type of thing gets I, us in trouble. I'm not, I'm not saying that everything I've done in my life has been brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> well, I agree. And that's why I'm saying I know exactly how it feels because I've been there and it's hard yeah. to resist on a, on a windy day. I mean, you, you get out in an open area on a windy day. It's hard to resist the back of a tractor trailer traveling your speed. Well, just not not tucking in behind the behind the wind blocker doesn't mean you're not going to get hit by something. Mm-hmm. You know, you could be sailing along in open country and suddenly a tree snaps off and it comes and clobbers you, or 
you know, a rock fall or, you know, there's things. No, like sure. That. But you're riding blind behind the truck. I mean, you, you, behind you, the truck, you're, you're definitely blind. Yeah. Uh, so no, I, uh, I'm, I'm not recommending that as a general procedure, but sometimes you, uh, you take your best guess as to what you have to do right now. And, and as we're talking about this, you, know, you can just, everyone, I think if, if you haven't ridden in the wind, uh, like a real extreme wind, um, you can imagine that you get tired and you do, don't you? Number one, it takes uh, a strong push on the grips to cause the motorcycle to roll quickly. <clears throat> so, uh, and you're doing this all the time. So the gust is battering you from the left, from the right, from head behind, you know, and you're pushing on the grips all the time. And this takes a tremendous amount of energy. Um, secondarily, there is the just the business of bracing yourself on the machine and you have your muscles tense uh, for a long time. So you're, like you say, back to the situation where you hear you're crossing the prairie somewhere, you know, and the wind is howling in from your left and you get the bike leaned over to the left about as far as you can. Well, it doesn't want to stay leaned over. It wants to straighten up and go right. Okay, and so what you have to do is you have to maintain a strong pull on the right grip to keep it leaned over. And this can, uh, this can tire you out pretty fast. So one of the secrets you can do, well, tactics that you can do is take more frequent breaks when you're in nasty situations. So as a general rule, uh, when you're traveling, if you'll take more breaks early in the day, uh, that will help you later on. But secondarily, whatever time of day you find yourself riding, if you're if you're getting tired because the wind is battering you around, don't just keep pushing forward, assuming that you're somehow going to be able to manage it. You know, take a break, get behind some shelter someplace, relax your muscles, you know, get some water, uh, you know, use use the brakes to uh, to let your muscles renew. Have you ever tried hanging your knee out on one side? Well, you can do that. Uh, uh, it has a, uh, I would say it has a very slight effect. It doesn't have as much effect as you would like it to have. Uh, what's actually going to cause the motorcycle to adjust its role is steering the front wheel. Mm. So if you hang your knee out into the, into the wind, it will, it will apply some pressure to it. But um, you could also just keep your knee tucked in and maybe be better braced on the machine and push on the grips to cause it to roll. So uh, I've never found that to be particularly desirable for managing wind. Yeah, I think it's a, it's always struck me as sort of gimmicky. I mean, I've done it before, and, and I, I get the same thing. You get a bit of a drag there, but I'd just as soon be on my bike and, and brace there to to be able to control it. So Yeah, yeah. I think you're right. It's, it's a gimmicky thing. It's, it's sort of like the people I've seen who uh, – I remember one occasion when there were three or four um, sport bikes came off the ferry on Bainbridge Island, and immediately they need to scrub their tires in. You know, so they swerve left, swerve right, swerve, 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 swerve to heat their tires up. Well, let's see. <laughs> you know, they're going down a, a road at 35 miles an hour for several miles or 40, and they're going to get up to 55 miles an hour, and you know, uh, and their tires are going to settle into whatever the ambient temperature is anyway. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's gimmicky. That's, that's for show. I'm not against showing off. <laughs> no, there's times where it's handy, isn't there? <laughs> so, okay. So to, to, to wrap things up here, I think the only thing that we haven't really covered is things that catch wind. And one of those things that I want to sort of bring up first was windshields, because often people like big windshields because they give us wind protection, which is, mm -hmm. which is cool, but they can be problematic. 
Yeah, what to, um, uh, how you position things on the bike is interesting. Uh, it turns out that just because of the way that motorcycles self-balance, that if you have uh, more uh, sail ahead of the steering axis, it actually helps self-balance the machine into the wind. Uh, so having a having a windshield, you know, sticking out ahead of the machine, or if you're thinking about a, uh, you know, any of the machines that have a big fairing up front, you know, mm -hmm. think about where that fairing is in relationship to the uh, to the front end. Um, if if that fairing is attached to the front end and causes it to steer, that's one thing. If it's just a big sail poking out ahead of the machine to give the wind something to push against. Then, then that's something else again. But, but the, uh, the sail effect on the stuff you have on the bike is important. So, for instance, think about this. Uh, You've you got to carry a big load, and you don't know what else to do, so you slap on the 60-liter the, uh, bag on the back of the bike, and, and then on top of that, you've got the spare helmet and, uh, oh, and, the, and the sleeping bag and, uh, and the tent, and, uh, you know, and this pile is getting bigger and bigger on the back. Well, we think about weight and mass. We tend not to think about the, the sale that all of this stuff that we pile up is adding to the back of the bike. Um, and in many cases, a foot or more behind the rear axle. So think about that. If, uh, if the wind gust suddenly slams into the side of the machine and it's going to push on your sleeping bag or whatever. That's a lot of leverage. Uh, it's a lot of leverage to push the front end of the bike around. So it's uh, so how you position things on the bike is also important, and um, and how you, you the ergonomics of how you fit on the machine that's also important. And as far as clothes go, I guess other than worrying about flapping, there's not much we can do there. Well, it is important to get tucked in because if you have a let's say a flappy collar on your jacket, you know it just flaps around and it buzzes. And the wind hits you from the side, and all of a sudden, this thing is going whap, 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 you know, against the side of your face. This can distract you from the task at hand. Well, David, that is a load of great information. <laughs> a load, yeah. <laughs> that was probably the wrong choice of words. I, I should... <laughs> I should have said that was a bunch of good information or great information. <laughs> great to have you on. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much for, for inviting me. David Hoff is an award-winning journalist, a two-time inductee into the AMA Motorcycle Hall of Fame, and the author of several books on motorcycling, including the bestseller Proficient Motorcycling. Coming up in one minute, we're going to talk with Grant Johnson about riding in rain. IMS Products was founded in 1976 and has been owned and operated by off-road racers and enthusiasts for over 40 years. You know what the, the racer obsession is like. They're driven to, to run full out, to get things to go to the max and, and build things to the max too, which is great because that's behind IMS. That's what IMS is all about. They use their, their years of experience of riding and racing, building dirt bikes, ATVs, and other vehicles to develop things like their extended range fuel tanks, their high quality foot pegs, their shift levers. Drop by their website, imsproducts.com, and have a look at their full line of adventure motorcycle pegs that are made just for our riding style, for adventure bikes www.imsproducts.com. And of course, anytime you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio.
Now, it's one thing to stand on the porch like this and watch the rain. It's something completely different when you're riding your bike, as you probably know. Well, here's Grant Johnson with some great tips and tricks for dealing with wet weather. Grant, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Thanks, Jim. It's good to be back. I always enjoy these talks. Always a pleasure to have you on. And of course, today we're talking about extreme riding, rain, and we're going to draw on your experience riding in the, in the rain, I guess, in all conditions. I mean, you've been riding since, when when did you get your license? When I, the day I was 16, I got my license. Oh, you got your bike license then? Yeah. Because I got my car license then. That was a big deal for me. As soon as I turned 16, I had to have my car (laughs) license, but I didn't get my bike license a couple of years later. No, I was uh, 20 before I got my car license. Oh, wow. So you're a diehard biker. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I rode every single day until I got my car license. And then I still rode 98% of days. And growing up in Vancouver, of course, I learned to ride in the rain. Yes, that's one thing we deal with here on the West Coast is loads and loads of rain. And if you want to ride, like if you want to extend the season, which most people do, then yeah, you end up really dealing with a lot of rain. Come September, there's a, a lot of pouring rain. Yeah, well, I rode all year round, literally every day. Uh, there was days where we had snow. And back in, when I started riding, there was a little bit more snow in Vancouver than there is now. And I remember riding in three and four feet of snow. The roads were sort of slightly plowed, and I was riding a dirt bike. And it's, it's actually great fun when there's no cars on the road. The roads are deserted. you got a proper dirt bike uh, with decent tires. You can really enjoy riding around Vancouver. <laughs> but I'm sure the traffic patterns have changed by now with Vancouver's oh, yeah. population. I wouldn't think about it now, no. It was, it was good fun then. Well, to kick things off with this, I mean, I guess, I guess where we should start is with um, being prepared as, as far as, the, you know, a rider. What, what do you have to do to be prepared? It's, a lot of people think that preparing as a rider, you just need to make sure you got your riding gear and you're dry and all that. But it, there's a lot of mental preparation that goes into it. I think, um, if you've been riding as long as I have, you, you kind of do it automatically. But when you're starting out riding in the rain is a completely different approach. You can't go out and have fun in the same way that you would in the dry, because if you make a mistake, it's going to hurt. It's going to be painful. You, you really can't make big mistakes and get away with it easily. Uh, so what do you mean? You're, think, you're doing a switch? Like you're, you're sort of changing the way you're thinking, changing your, your, your mentality when you leave? Totally, totally. I'm, I'm going out on a, a nice, beautiful, sunny Sunday ride, and I'm going to have some fun. I mean, let's, let's be honest. We ride motorcycles, and we don't ride ones that are capable of 50 miles an hour top speed or whatever. We ride to, to have a little bit of fun. And that might mean you're going a little quicker than you maybe should do in some situations. You're, you're pushing your luck occasionally. Let's face it, we all go out and we play silly ass sometimes. But in the rain, you do that, it's going to hurt. You're, you're, you will fall down because you can't afford to make a mistake in the rain. There, there is no margin for error. It's the time to, to pull things in, isn't it? And be, become a proactive rider, defensive driving, all that sort of thing. And reduce your speeds, uh, all the things you do when you're being extra cautious. Yeah, you, you have to realize that you, you want to get to your destination at the end. And that is the most important thing. If you don't get to your destination, you fail. So getting there is important. And the only way you're going to do it is by being sensible and not doing stupid stuff. So what about gear then? What about preparing ourselves for the wet? Gear, I've been a big fan of proper riding gear, rain gear, something that you can, that will actually keep you dry. If you're soaking wet and miserable and cold, especially here, we get really cold and miserable in the winter. And I remember riding in 
and terrible junk rain gear from guys used for working on the roads kind of thing. And we were constantly soaking wet. Your hands are soaked, your feet are soaked, you're freezing. You start getting into hypothermia issues. And you're, as soon as you start getting cold and wet, your brain shuts down. All the blood flow to your brain is turned off. Um, your body doesn't work well when it's cold and wet. So you need to keep dry and warm as well. And it's not just dry, but you also have to keep warm. Okay, so good rain suit, jacket. What other sort of gear? Um, good boots. Waterproof boots. I think that's really important. Uh, waterproof gloves. I use a waterproof glove, um, which is kind of a three-season glove. It's too warm for the winter unless it's pouring rain, and it's not really warm enough in the worst of winter. But uh, it's a really good all-around glove. It's waterproof. It's Gore-Tex liner. Fantastic. Love it. And there are good gloves out there, but you're not going to find it in the $49 counter. Right. You know, they're they're going to be $100 plus minimum. I've heard of people putting those big rubber gloves over their gloves before for riding. Yeah. Yeah, I've done that and they work well. I used to carry uh, sort of a, a vinyl thing made by Rucka way back in the 60s. And they were absolutely waterproof and wonderful. They were very, very good. Uh, there's a couple of companies that sell three-fingered gloves, just a waterproof over mitt. They, and the three-finger ones work really well. They're also known as claw gloves or, sorry, um, lobster claw gloves. Um, the two, you put two fingers together and that means you have less seams. Every time you put a seam in a theoretically waterproof glove, you're increasing your risk of a leak. So the, the two finger thing works. And the other advantage of putting two fingers together is they're warmer. Mm. Yeah. Which like you said, that, that when, especially in, in areas like what we're in, when it rains, uh, it's quite often associated with colder weather too. But mm-hmm. I was going to mention about boots. You said about um, waterproof boots. That's great, but I mean, waterproof boots can be very expensive. What about the um, the covers? And that's what I'm riding with now. I've got actually, I think they're meant for for cycling, but they're covers that you slip on your feet. Yeah, I've used those too, and they work well. Uh, the, one of the advantages of them is that you can have a boot that's not waterproof, and which is which means it's going to be cooler on a hot hot summer day. And you put the waterproof cover over top, and that'll keep your feet dry. And they, they work very well. I've, I've been quite happy with them. The only thing I don't like about them is that when you get off the bike, trying to walk around in the things, it's horrible. Yeah, I was going to mention that too. And the other thing is, is a strap. Quite often, depending on what model you get, the strap can get caught on your foot pegs. That's something to, to watch as well. Yeah, you've got to be really careful that they, you pull them tight. Any straps or whatever, they've got to be tight, fit well. Um, I used to use a bit of duct tape to go around just to make sure. And there was one pair that I had. I remember if I didn't duct tape, I was going to catch my feet for sure. So you got to be really careful and make sure that they're well secured. Now, the other thing, because that's the outer outer coating of us when we're out there. The other thing is where, what we're wearing underneath. Yeah, keep warm, dress properly. Layering. Um, I, like, I go for layers always. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine wearing something that's really thick and heavy and bulky. That's just crazy. Just layer after layer after layer, as many as you need. Um, Susan loves silk. She wears silk underwear, long johns on top, and thinks that's just absolutely the best thing ever. And she even wears them in the summer. You don't? And, uh, I don't. No. I, I use uh, synthetics, hmm. just straight synthetics, not silk. She loves silk. And a lot of people swear by merino wool. Um, there's many people who have said merino wool. Oh, yes. yeah, that's that's the best. I, I love merino wool. It's, it's amazing stuff. It wicks away the moisture. It's thin for the heat that you get out of it. I, th- I think it's just amazing stuff. And that's one thing that I, I ride with pretty much all the time as, as the layer between my jacket and my arms, even on hot weather like this, except when it gets really warm. But, but that's what I'll wear underneath my merino wool sweater. Yeah. 
Yeah, that works well. I've been very happy with just general synthetics. I use um, synthetic, like an undershirt that's designed for um, bicycling or active sports, and I find that works really well. And the T-shirts, all the Horizons Unlimited T-shirts that we sell are synthetic, and they work really well as a base layer too. Hmm, well, I didn't realize that. That's that's handy because most T-shirts you get from people are cotton. It always sort of oh, throws yeah. you off. You get them for outdoors things or for riding, and you're, you got this cotton T-shirt. Yeah, when we first started selling T-shirts at events because people asked us, you know, do you have a T-shirt? We said, oh, T-shirt. Yeah, okay. So we got cotton T-shirts and a couple of synthetics just for fun. And we were selling like 90% cotton T-shirts at the events. Well, it's changed. And now 10, 12 years later, we're selling 90% synthetic at the events. Because oh, people are have, more aware of it. They're much more aware. And the ones that we get, all our T-shirts are the best quality we can find. Designed for active wicking, sweat all that kind of stuff. That's the thing with it. You have to get a good quality. I mean, you can get the cheap synthetic shirts, but they tend to not fit very well. And I think that's why people tend to shy away from them. But if you get a yep. good quality one, they're, they're great. Yeah, and the cheap ones, you end up stinking too. That's true, yeah. <laughs> that's a factor. So the better quality ones, um, they re- work really well. I love mine. So any other, um, as far as rider stuff, I'm thinking helmet here. Do you do anything with your helmet and your visor? I make sure that I've either got a pinlock visor and I wear glasses as well, so I make sure I've got some anti-fog. I use uh, anti-fog from skiing or from diving, either one. Okay. Anti-fog on your glasses works well. And if you don't have a pin lock, make sure that you've either got an anti-fog visor or you put um, the anti-fog coating on it. Now, some people but are I, probably wondering, what is a pin lock? I, mean, I, I wondered this not too long ago. Right, okay. Well, a pin lock is a system that, that's branded pin lock, and it's a second shield that goes inside your, your regular face shield, and it's a second layer, and that's what prevents the fogging. The fog reason is because the cold shield gets this warm, moist breath, and it condenses on the inside of your shield. That's fogging. But if you have a double layer, like a storm window, like a double window, a double layer window in your house, then you don't get any fogging. It works great. They're definitely recommended. Are you riding with your visor closed all the time? No. I ride 99% of the time. It's open just a crack. Right. Okay. That gives me fresh air. Um, keeps me from feeling like I'm, it's feeling from the air getting stuffy. It always feels better. If I can possibly ride with it open a crack, I will. I always find that it clears my helmet. It could be the helmets because I, mean, I don't have expensive helmets, but I find I have to have it cracked open. When it starts to rain, I need that air coming in to keep my visor clear. I mean, of yeah, course, I don't, I'm not running a pin lock system. That makes a huge difference. Um, I've got a, I've run with pin locks on medium helmets and cheap helmets and really good helmets. And the pin lock is certainly the best solution, without a doubt. And you can actually do it aftermarket. It's possible. It's a pain in the neck, but it's possible. Do you keep it on um, all the time, the pin lock? Yeah. Just put it on. Forget about it. How do you clean between them? You don't. It's sealed completely, so you don't need to need to clean it. Oh, okay. Oh, I didn't realize that. So it's it's two pieces, just like your, your window then, like you said. Yeah. Just oh, okay. like the window in your house. That's, so that's a, a big thing to do. If you, I wouldn't buy a helmet that didn't have an easy pin lock already built in or available for it. It's, it's like if you can't have a pin lock, why would you do that helmet? It just works so much better. Right. Do you wear anything around your neck other than just your closing up your, your neck on your collar of your jacket? Back in about, well, let's say when I started riding, uh, yes, I wore a scarf all the time in the winter. Um, it made a big difference because the jackets we had in those days didn't have good collars. They weren't high. They didn't seal. They weren't waterproof. Nothing worked well at all. So a scarf made a huge difference to me. It was much warmer. And by the time it got soaked through, I was at my destination generally because I wasn't going all that far. 
so that worked really well. Today, I've got a good jacket. It's got a nice high collar. It seals up well. I don't bother wearing a scarf anymore. In fact, I don't like wearing a scarf. You take heated gear. When you, you and Susan go, even on a, a nice day like today, and it's beautiful out right now, you guys mm-hmm. take heated gear with you. Yes, we always have our electric vest with us. Uh, we actually went out for our first ride of the year, finally got the bike running and had time to get it sorted and figure out what its issue was. Um, so we went for a ride up to Mount Baker yesterday, which up to about um, oh, 1,000 meters or so was beautiful. And then we hit uh, 1,500 meters, I think it was, and it was less than beautiful. <laughs> and Susan was saying, I got my electric vest. I might just put it on. So, yeah, we, it was definitely would have been worth wearing at that time. And that can happen even on a summer day, like even if you don't go up in elevation, you head out in the afternoon. It's, I, I, this happens to me a lot. I think, oh, it's warm. I'll be fine with just this. And then you start to come back at night. It's, wow, it's, it's quite chilly. I mean, it doesn't take much to cool down to the point where you're getting chilled. Yeah, I find 23 degrees Celsius is a perfect riding temperature. But it's really easy for that to drop to 15 when the sun goes down or yeah. less. Even in the middle of summer, it can get chilly. And yep, electric vest. Turn it, plug it in, turn it on. It's wonderful. Yeah. I know there's a lot of people out there who don't have electric vests. And every time I say electric vest, I always see these, oh, wait, what are you, wuss or something? Yep. <laughs> yep. But I'm a warm, toasty, happy, comfortable wuss. <laughs> now, speaking of, of, of electric clothing, the interesting thing about electric clothing is you got to keep that fairly close to your body. You don't put that on over everything. No, no. I start out with my base layer. Uh, like a t-shirt and then I put my electric vest on and then I'll put a light fleece on top of that and then my riding jacket and that will take me down to freezing temperatures. So that's important to remember when you're sizing your jacket when you're going to look for an electric vest. I think sometimes people put it on over think well I'll put it over a sweater and stuff but no no you want you want that element right up against your body like within one layer of your body. Yep absolutely you have a choice you can heat the world or you can heat you so use the insulation to keep the heat inside. Are you using heated gloves? I used to, uh, but I've got heated grips now, so I don't bother anymore. And the, um, on the BMW GS, of course, you've got the hand protectors, which knock off the worst of the wind, and heated grips, and I've got my good waterproof gloves. I don't have a problem with hands anymore. I haven't had in years. I was just wondering how much of a wuss you were, but now, and at first, you, <laughs> you, you gained some, some notoriety there, but then you went back with the heated grips. You, you mentioned that the, the hand guards, what about windshield? Like, um, sort of to prepare for this, if, you know, if you're planning a long trip and you're thinking, okay, I'm going to run into all kinds of weather, the windshield is definitely something to consider and it's going to have an effect when you ride in the rain. Yeah, for sure. Uh, just make sure that you can see over it. And that's where a lot of people go wrong. They're trying to get more wind protection and they crank the windshield up to the top and they're looking through it. As soon as it rains, you don't have a windshield wiper. Mm-hmm. You can't see. So you must make sure you can see over your windshield to a decent distance in front of you so you can see the road right where you're going to be riding. And we'll talk about that later. Yeah. Anything else with as far as um, the rider itself preparing your, yourself? I think it, it's back to get your head on straight in the right direction and make sure you're comfortable. If you're not comfortable, if you've got too much gear on, switch back to electric vest again. You don't have to wear as much. Um, just be make sure you're as dry as you can get. Um, I don't mind using duct tape or big rubber bands to hold my clothing in, keep it in, in position, whatever it takes. Make sure you're as dry and as comfortable as you can for as long as you can. I've had, with good gear, I've ridden in unbelievable downpours all day long to the point. I remember one ride Susan and I took across Canada 
Um, we were in Alberta and we had two days nonstop of rain so heavy that we would often see cars pulling off to the side of the road because they couldn't see where they were going and it was so heavy. And we were absolutely dry. Not a single drop got in for either of us for the entire two days. That's, wow. that's good gear. That's what mm-hmm. it should be. Yeah, definitely. Uh, as a matter of fact, I was going to say, when it, when it comes to gear, I find the thing that goes first on all of my gear is the crotch in my pants. You know, you're swinging your leg over, you're getting on. It seems to take the brunt of everything. And that's where I notice the suit's getting old first. Yeah, that's a big stress point for sure. So again, that's when you're buying gear, take a look there. How well have they done it? And when you buy gear, especially pants, of course, sit and make sure that you can actually squat, spread your legs and get on the bike. Because uh, it's easy to put a pair of pants on and say, yep, they fit pretty good. And then you go to get on the bike and all of a sudden there's this big stretch in the middle and you're really stressing the gear. That's just not going to last. So maybe a size up is a better idea. And, and even for handling the bike too, right? Because you get all your gear on, everything feels different. You're all of a sudden stiffer. Everything's more cumbersome. It's tough to reach yep. the levers depending on what gloves you've switched to, the whole thing. Yeah, well, that's why I'm very fussy about my gloves. Um, the gloves I've got are over $200, but I would pay it again tomorrow in a heartbeat if somebody stole them. What are those because gloves? Because they work. Uh, they're made by Rucka. Hmm. Yeah, really, really good gloves. Um, they make superb quality stuff. Um, I think the, the important thing is that the gloves aren't so bulky that you lose control. If you have an issue with control, if you're not feeling comfortable – don't ride. Don't do it because your control is bad. And one of the big advantages we have over cars is maneuverability and great braking. If we can't get to our brake and we can't maneuver comfortably, we're in trouble. And, and that's just not a good, a re- good recipe. And it's fatigue, isn't it? I mean, you, you get gloves that are too tight on you, trying to double up gloves, like we talked about putting the rubber gloves mm-hmm. over, depending on your setup there. You get something that's too bulky, you're tending to work your hands a lot more, and you get fatigued. Yep. And fatigue is a, is a killer. It's just sure. going to wear you out. And you, as soon as you start getting tired and you're cold and you're wet, get off the road. So it's, it's just not safe. Let's talk about bike then. What do you do in advance to prepare with your bike? Anything? It depends. Um, I had a bike once where I had a very small windscreen. Um, it was kind of a sport bike. And if I was going to ride in the rain, I would take duct tape and run it from the windscreen to the mirror. And that made a really good windshield. <laughs> I see what you're doing. Really, really ugly. <laughs> but you think about it, you got this windshield and you got these mirrors and there's a big gap there. Well, if you duct tape that up, put a bunch of strips across, um, all of a sudden you've got a much bigger windshield that takes, keeps a lot of the rain off your body. And that worked really well. It's quite surprising. Windshields are a tough one because there's so many of them on the market. They're so expensive. You can't just go and buy one and try it unless you're just have endless money. One of the ways I've found to experiment is to take something stiff like a you know piece of plastic or something. One of those crazy carpets works kind of well. And a roll of duct tape and start cutting and trying different size windshields. Take it up to the speed that you're going to travel and sort of see where you get your buffeting, etc. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I think something that a lot of people tend to forget is that a lot of people buy a windshield, discover it doesn't work, and then they sell it on eBay. There's a lot of good, perfectly good, barely used windshields out there for sale on eBay. Start there. And if it doesn't work, put it back on eBay. Yeah, because it doesn't mean that it's not a good windshield if somebody's selling it because it doesn't work for them. It has to do with our height, doesn't it? Yeah, it's all about height and um, upper body length as well as related to the uh, lower body because you can be very tall and have a short upper body, or you can have a very long upper body, and that Mm -hmm. makes a massive difference as well. So what other things in the bike? 
on the bike. Um, I think about waterproofing, making sure that it's well protected. I use things like um, uh, LPS3 to spray my electrical connections. I use dielectric grease on spark plugs, boots, and various other electrical areas. Uh, make sure that it's properly prepared for the rain that way. Um, other than that, good lighting is really important because mm. you're much harder to see. So good lighting. Uh, I think a headlight modulator is not a bad thing. Uh, extra lighting on the, for braking is good. Car drivers can't see you, so you need to make sure that the bike itself is more visible. Of course, think about riding gear that's more visible. I wear a white helmet, not a black helmet, because that's more visible. I've got a reflective sticker on the back of my helmet because that makes me more visible by the cars from behind. Susan has one on the back of hers so that we're you get this um, high reflective, bright blinding thing and your taillights, and that makes the bike feel closer to somebody following you. So that makes it safer as well. Uh, reflective strips on the side of the bike. Make sure it's visible. Okay, so we're getting on our bike, heading out. What changes? I mean, I know you said mindset, and that makes perfect sense. We definitely have to change our riding style. Totally. Number one, smooth. Smooth, smooth, smooth. That's the number one thing. Um, if you are jerky at all, you're going to be in trouble. Um, you want to be super smooth on the brakes. You want to squeeze that front brake lever. You don't want to just grab it. Uh, everything you do should be smooth. If you're leaned over, just lean over. Don't change gears. Don't use the brakes. Don't combine things. If you try and do two things at once in the rain, you're in trouble. Um, if you're going to brake, make sure you brake adequately. Make sure you brake smoothly. Squeeze those levers gently and bring it down. When you hit the brakes in the rain and when you hit the brakes in the dry as well, you don't want to just grab the brake. You want to squeeze and squeeze harder and harder and harder. And that means that the front tire is planted. It's sticking to the road. Whether it's wet or dry, it doesn't matter. It's the same thing. But it's always squeeze and increase the squeeze. Don't just yank. And you, you really want to head out and try this before you go on some big long trip with all your gear loaded up and hit this thunderstorm with you know pouring down rain and everything this, this is something you want to get used to gain some confidence gets your skill level up yeah i think it riding in the rain is actually really good for you and i think people should do it more i know i learned to ride in the rain a lot because i had to go to school and it was raining and that's what i learned i learned not to fall down um, and i think learning to ride in the rain makes you a better rider in a lot of ways you you survive it, which means that you've, your confidence increases. You feel better about it. And pavement, dry pavement, starts to feel, oh, this is easy. There's no problem here. So your confidence improves, which makes you possibly a better rider, maybe a more dangerous rider. I don't know. But hopefully it makes you more, more aware of the risks and the problems that you, can, that you have to run into and deal with. Um, and it makes you a smoother rider. The smoother you are, the easier everything is, the less effort everything is, the more fun it is, and the more pleasant it is for your passenger. What about in the first few minutes when it starts to rain? That's when it's really bad. The road is very, very slippery. The, all the oil that the cars have dropped is going to rise to the surface, and it's really slick. Stay in the car tracks. That's really important. That center line down the middle, very, very, very dangerous. And especially, I mean, I know it's getting better for, you know, developing countries because cars are getting better, leaking less oil. Um, but mm -hmm. in other countries, I mean, that's got to be a real concern. Yeah, you got to pay attention to it everywhere. 
And it's not just the oil. It's also the white lines, the manhole covers, things like that are, are going to cause you a lot of problems too. You know, my first uh, experience with white lines and rain was on a bicycle. I was about 14 and I discovered that they don't mix. I came out of it with a concussion. Wow. And railway tracks, the same thing. You know, you get railway tracks that are cutting across where you're in a city or something like that. That's the type of thing that'll take you down or, or a little, um, you know, sometimes they have that little brick on the road. Mm-hmm. Brick is really bad as well. Uh, but manhole covers are the ones that really sneak up on people because you don't really see them and they're scattered all over the place. So really watch for those. And oil, people have dropped oil generally. Um, I mean, in Europe, I've seen diesel slicks right across the road. You've got to be careful for that. If you see a, uh, a rainbow color effect on the road, that's oil. And that's going to take you down. Wooden bridges? Wooden bridges? Oh, good fun. <laughs> yeah, you've got to make a point of you always, always have to be aware of road surface. I think that's probably the number one difference between motorcyclists and car drivers. We pay attention to the road. If we don't pay attention to the road, it's going to bite us. So let's not do that. Let's pay attention to the road. Always be aware of the surface. Watch for potholes. In the rain, a pothole could be full of water. You could have a two-foot deep pothole. And I've seen mm-hmm. two-foot, three-foot deep potholes. And with water in them, you don't know that. And that yeah, gets really exciting. But, I mean, if it's pouring rain and you're driving in some country, you're riding, you're riding along, and, and the road is just filling up with water, you're not going to see any potholes. Isn't that the time to get off the road? That is the time to get off the road. If you, you don't ride in those conditions in strange countries unless you have to. And then you stay in the car tracks and you try and follow a car and pay attention and, and don't follow a car too close. That's something else I see a lot of motorcyclists doing. I saw a guy doing it yesterday. I couldn't believe how close he was following a car. But stay back. Give yourself room. You know, I've seen uh, – I was in Spain and following a car, not too close, but probably closer than I should have been, closer than I normally would have been. And he went over a rock and I only just missed it. Mm-hmm. He just drove right over it and didn't pay any attention to it, whereas there it was right in my path. And I almost hit it. Um, what about dealing with other drivers? They can't see you. That's as simple as that. They're, they've got little hula dolls hanging from their mirrors. They've got a GPS stuck on the windshield. It's raining. They've got restricted field of view because of the wipers. have only got so much clearance. And it's probably generally crappy weather. And they're not paying attention. And they're on their phone. They don't see you. You have to assume that nobody out there sees you and treat it as if they're either they don't see you or they do see you and they're out to get you. So I just really avoid other cars and I'm just ultra paranoid. I'm just going to jump back to what you said a minute ago about, about uh, following cars and you're saying follow them, but not too closely and stay in the tire tracks. The other advantage of that is that you see what they go through. And, and this is for, I mean, you can use it all the time. Uh, if they go through a pothole, you see that pothole, you see the car react to it and you can, you can sure. adjust your driving or your, your track accordingly. Yeah, that's why I'm following them because I can see what, as long as I'm in their car track or their tire track, that's the important thing. If you stay in their tire track, then whatever happens to them happens to you and you are far enough back that you can react to it in time, which means that you have to be able to stop in the time, in that distance between them and you. And that's a lot farther back than you think, especially in the rain. The braking distance is so much reduced, sorry, increased. And splashing, that's another thing to watch for? Yeah, car's coming the other way, you've got to pay attention. And if you see what looks like a big puddle and a car coming towards you and they're going to go through it, they don't pay any attention to puddles whatsoever. 
So you've got to pay attention to what the situation is going to be and be prepared to slow right down and come and pull off the side of the road if you have to. Do whatever it takes to avoid being completely deluged and literally blown off your bike by the water. And that's what I was going to say next is when is it time to get off the road? How do you know when, okay, this is it? Well, everybody's going to have a different time, but I think it comes down to is this sensible? Am I out here because I'm enjoying it and it's not a problem and everything's pretty safe and there's not too much rain and it's, it's okay? Or am I feeling really stressed? When you start tensioning up, tightening up all your muscles and you realize that you're riding tense, it's time to get off the road. If you can't ride relaxed, even in the rain, you should always be hands not squeezing the grips. As soon as you realize you're squeezing the grips and your shoulders are tight, it's time to get off the road. It's time to relax. Something's not right here. You're, you're overstressing yourself. Your brain can only do and deal with so much and so many things. And when you're riding in the rain, you've got cars, you've got roads, conditions, you've got the rain itself, you've got your own comfort. You've got a lot to deal with and it can get to be too much and it's overwhelming. Get off the road. And temperature would be another one, wouldn't it? Yeah, as soon as it starts to get cold. I mean, we're back to electric vest. Make sure you're warm. If you're not warm, as soon as your, your body temperature starts to cool down, your brain stops working. If your brain's not working when you're riding, forget it. And you start to get wet and, and you cool down, I think it's five times faster when you're wet than, uh, than when you're dry. And it's pretty easy to go from that, that time where you're, you're, everything's fine into hypothermic. Yes, far quicker than we realize. You don't, you don't start to shiver or anything like that. Your body just starts to slowly shut down and your brain stops working and you're a few degrees colder. And it's amazing how quickly and how easily it happens. And now that I'm much more aware of it than I used to be, I think back and I think I was hypothermic there and there and there and there and there and there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, you know, you, you've really got to be pretty careful about that. And the worst part about hypothermia is the deeper you get into it, the less you feel it. And the less your brain figures it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the more you think I'm okay, the more you're probably not because your brain isn't thinking at all. So you got to be careful. Any other tips for riding in the rain? Tires. Mm. That just popped into my head. Yes. Make sure you have good tires with lots of tread on them. The depth of tread is critical to making sure that you have good, good traction. If your tread depth is getting thin, you're at severe risk of hydroplaning. So I always change my tires far before the time when they, you know, like the tire manufacturers say, change the tires at the wear bar. The wear bar is for perfect dry conditions. I, I ride in the Pacific Northwest of Canada, and I change my tires a lot sooner than that because the, I want a lot of tread. The more tread I can get, the better. Grant, great to have you on as always. Thanks very much. Okay, good to be here, and I hope that helps somebody. And that was Grant Johnson from Horizons Unlimited. You can find out more about Horizons Unlimited and what they do for motorcycle travel. It is the hub, literally. www.horizonsunlimited.com. And speaking of that, they are uh, they run this hum event, which is the their Horizons Unlimited Mountain Madness, sort of an orienteering by motorcycle event. And they've got one coming up in August, uh, 11 to 13, 2017. You can drop by their website to check that out. And of course, the link to that will be in our show notes. Stay with us. Coming up in just a minute, Chantel Simons. Tour 
USA.us, located in Washington State in the United States. They do guided tours. They do self-guided tours and training tours. And the interesting thing is, in their training tours, they do it with PSSOR. It's the, the same people running both companies. This backcountry adventure they've got, it's called Washington Backcountry Adventure on their website. It's eight days long, 680 miles, but I think somewhere around 1,000 kilometers, rough calculation there. It's running July 23rd through 30th this year. Um, intermediate skill level. This is the type of thing where you go out and you actually learn as you ride on a real adventure. It's very cool. So you're going out with instructors. You're you're doing a run. You're, you're checking out the, the Washington Backcountry Discovery Route and learning better riding skills while you're at it. Drop by their website. Have a look. www.tourusa.us. And anytime you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. My name is Chantal Simons. I'm from the Netherlands. I ride motorbikes and apart from that, I'm an exercise scientist and a lover of sharing all sorts of passions with other people. Chantal, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you, Jim. Thank you for having me. What do you do as an exercise scientist? Um, well, we basically um, look at all sorts of aspects of the, the human body and um, look at health, at uh, rehabilitation and also sports teams, how to make them perform better. Um, it's kind of a broad broad view on human exercise and sports and all those kind of things. But that's secondary because you said at first you're a motorcyclist. <laughs> yeah, that's what I've been doing for the last two years, I guess. I like that. I mean, that's, doesn't bring that's much money in. But. No. <laughs> <laughs> but but the thing is, in life, do we have to say what we are as as being the thing that makes us our money? Can't we be something and make our money some other way? Oh, absolutely. I think we should be many things. How do you Don't mean? try to. Uh, well, if you try to quantify yourself under just one denominator, I think you're selling yourself short. So you can be a motorcycling, exercise scientist, love cooking, passionate about going for runs on the beach. And, you know, if you just try to put that all into one word, yeah, you might miss out on a lot of things. So you ended up getting your first bike when you were, what, 21, 22 years old? Yes. So what, yes. what did you do? You, you got your license and then you pretty much immediately went on a trip? Um, yeah, so I got my license, um, bought the motorbike that I'd wanted for the last 10 years. Um, and then a good friend of mine said, oh, I'm going to ride to Estonia, which is um, almost 2,000 kilometers from the Netherlands, I believe. And he said, do you want to come along? I said, yep, sure. So with maybe a week notice, um, I packed my stuff onto a Ducati Monster, which is definitely not made for that kind of travel. <laughs> um, and we just went and that was it. No, like minimal preparation, um, not the right gear at all. But we didn't even think twice about it. We just went. 
Well, you just mentioned the trip around Australia. That was after you did your, your first trip there, that 10-day trip. Um, I guess it was four years later, you ended up doing the, the, a trip right around Australia. Just tell me about that. Um, yeah, so I came over to Australia to do my master's, do an internship here. And when you look at the map, Australia is so big. So I was, I, was, I was kind of certain that I wouldn't want to do a motorbike trip around here, that I would just you know, be a backpacker and do the normal thing. Um, but when I got here, I missed my bike. And then I realized that to go anywhere in Australia, you basically need your own transport. And once I realized that, it was the choice was easy. I started looking at bikes again, and and I decided to um, get a little road trail bike, a 250cc, because I'm not that tall, unfortunately. So uh, my <laughs> bike choices are very limited. Yeah, the, the XT250. Right, which is a great bike. Oh yeah, oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I love it. I love my bike. Despite its um, name in Australia, though, which is... Uh, they call it a chook chaser here, which basically <laughs> means that it's only good for chasing chickens around the farm. Um, because <laughs> it's really because it's like the standard size for farm bikes. It's small enough, easy, anybody can maneuver it sort of thing. And, and it's all, you, I guess, all you need. Yes, absolutely. Um, but yeah, because it's small, um, it's, it's easy to ride. And you can literally take it on any terrain. You can take it in the sand and gravel. It's and because it's it's not high like many motorbikes are, many road trail bikes at least are um, that they're, they're tall, and I'm not. So for me, it was a perfect match. So when you say around Australia, roughly, what route are you talking? Um, I started in Perth with my dad, actually, so it was very special to uh, share a part of that trip with him because we shared that love of motorbikes and travel for a long time. Um, we started off and we followed the entire south coast from Perth all the way to Melbourne. And then he had to go back to Europe and I continued on my own and explored a lot of the east coast of, Aust of Australia. And... Then I went from Brisbane to Alice Springs, basically straight through the middle, and then once again from Alice Springs back to Perth, also through the middle, through deserts and everything. Did all of that with a friend of mine, and together we also travelled up the um, the entire west coast from there to Darwin. Um, and all up, we're talking about 25,000 kilometres, I believe. So what's it like riding solo through all these areas? Um... Some of it I did solo, some of it I didn't. Um, but what, what's striking, I guess, is wherever I arrived, um, people were really supportive. People were surprised and supportive. So Surprised that you're riding a chook chaser? Surprised that you're a woman traveling on your own? Which? Yeah, all of that. All of that. All of those. <laughs> surprised that anyone is doing anything like that at all regardless of whether being a woman um whether what kind of bike it is um why though well, yeah. what's what's the surprise and is that anyone would be doing it is it not interesting riding no it is absolutely um but i guess we're still a we adventure riders are still a, a rare breed so when you meet people on the road 
they're like, oh, wow, what are you doing? Because you have this bike and you've got all your gear on it. And um, people are just curious. Now, especially um, because, I mean, my bike didn't look like a a, a well-traveled person. Um, I had two uh, carry-on luggage suitcases. They were strapped on as panniers. <laughs> and um, I had this, um, a little blue dry bag that was um, the cheapest I could find. And I had a plastic toolbox that was sort of converted into a top box. So it was just this, this mixture of things that shouldn't even be on a bike. So people really wondered what I was doing and where, where did I think I was going to end up with all of this? <laughs> and they were probably wondering, do you know what you're doing, especially with the luggage? I just realized I saw a photograph of the luggage on there. And it's, it is, it's your typical blue luggage bags that you would tow onto an airplane. Exactly. That's exactly what they are. Yeah. And they weren't even the same color. Like it was two different ones too. (laughs) But how do they work? Oh, they work great. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. If you're on a tight budget. (laughs) How did you have them attached to the bike? Um, At first I started off without having a rack on the bike. So the first one I attached um, just with a piece of wood to make sure that it couldn't uh, swing in and touch the back wheel. Um, and it was basically with um, zip ties and a piece of rope and, yeah, a piece of wood. Um, and then I got an, a proper rack on the back of the bike. And I could just rest the suitcases on the, the thing that stood out from the rack and just used cable ties. So, yeah, zip tied it to the rack. Very nice. Well, now, of course, we've got uh, green chili straps. I don't know if you've heard of them. One of our advertisers on the show here, they've got these uh, long straps that you can use for doing that exact same thing, turning any bag into luggage. Yeah. I might have to talk to these guys. <laughs> <laughs> you, you probably should because they've got some they've got some really nice straps set up for doing exactly that. Actually, for dry bags as well, you can you can sort of strap oh. everything on there. But so th- this this trip around Australia you did, wh- wh- how many kilometers are we talking? Roughly twenty five thousand. Twenty five thousand and five months it took you. Um. Yeah, five six months. I took a few breaks and I worked in between. So. Um, it's hard to actually pinpoint how long exactly, but yeah, around five to six months. Yeah. I think a lot of people don't, don't realize how big Australia is. I mean, you know, they just don't picture it being very large, but it's, it's got incredibly vast open spaces that you're riding, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, especially when you start going to the middle, like on our way to Alice Springs, we would have, um, 380 kilometers without, any settlement, so that also meant no fuel, no, no shelter, no nothing, for over 300 kilometers. And then after that, you come to an, a little settlement with maybe five houses and a petrol station, and then you go for another 300 kilometers with nothing. What did you do on the XT250 for fuel then? Um, I had a, a spare tank with me, so a jerry can with extra fuel, and. It's actually very good on fuel. So it's got a 9.6 liter tank, normal tank, um, which I could do almost 300 kilometers with. Oh, wow. Uh, and then some spare fuel extra. And uh, yeah, I had a, with the spare fuel, it was about a 500 kilometer range. 
Are there places in Australia that you rode through that you would highly recommend other people that they go visit? Oh, this is so hard because there's so many there's so beautiful many. places. <laughs> yeah, there are so many. And there's, that's the reason I fell in love with this country. Um, I think my favorite would be um, the south of Western Australia. There are a place called um, Esperance. That's, that's a city. And then there's a national park, Cape Legrand National Park. And that area has just the bluest sea you've ever seen. And there's red rocks. And one of the beaches, there's actually kangaroos on the beach. And it's surreal. It's completely surreal. I was just, when I got there, I just sat down for an hour and stared out over the water and watched these kangaroos and just thought that I landed in a movie or something. So after Australia, you did a 45,000 kilometer trip. What was that about? Yeah, after Australia, you would think that um, riding around for five months would satisfy your uh, adventure needs, but no, I think it's I fueling quite... it with you. That's that's the pattern that I see. <laughs> it seems like none of this is a cure. This is all fuel for future. Yeah, yeah, I've calmed down now a little bit, but um, so what happened was I kind of had this decision to make: Do I go into what's commonly seen as normal life? Do I um, get a job and settle down somewhere and, and, you know, start normal life? Or do I go and do something crazy before I start doing that? And I think the idea of settling down didn't sit well with me. So I decided to um, start traveling around Asia and then the idea of taking planes and buses and taxis and all of that just that, that was not going to be me. So um, I found out that I could ship my bike over to Asia. And that's what I did. I shipped my bike to Asia. And once you get through all the paperwork and all the hassle of arranging that, um, you kind of have to make a big thing out of it. So I decided to ride all the way back to the Netherlands. Make a big thing, you mean, because the, the shipping is such a hassle? The shipping, the paperwork, um, just arranging it all. Um, I was like, I better make it worth it. You know, you don't want to do all of that and then just ride around Indonesia and be done with it. Um, so I really make the best out of it. Yeah. And how long was that trip? 15 months. I mean, you ended up in China, didn't you? Yes, a little tiny bit of China too, yeah. What's the deal with getting into China? Did you have to hire a guide and, and was it quite expensive? Yes. It's probably the most ex- expensive five days of my life. Um, <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So with China, they basically don't want people to just ride around and be nosy and stuff. So you have to get a guide and you have to stay in certain hotels with this guide. And there's a lot of paperwork involved. And they make you pay a lot of money. You went through India, Nepal, and Pakistan, and, and some of the stands. And one of the things that you said that I thought was interesting is that you, um, as far as dealing with the visas go, and as far as dealing with authorities, you you said you learned not to be afraid of them, and, and that it was a bit of a game that they're playing. Yeah. So um, I guess growing up in a Western country, you are so aware of the law and all the rules and all the regulations and you know I was always um, brought up to 
be nice and play nice and, and obey all the rules and do all of that. Um, and you think that the rules are the rules and that's the way it is. But when you start traveling around, you realize that all these rules are different in different countries and that the people enforcing them are just doing a job and their job is to make sure that, you know, the society runs without many major problems. And But they're just doing their job. So even if you don't obey the rules particularly, um, if you're not causing massive trouble, they might not mind too much. And it sounds a bit like a grey area, and I guess that's what it is. Um, I learned not to be afraid of policemen. I learned not to be afraid of border guards and, you know, approach them as people rather than someone who might give you a fine if you do something wrong. Because you can't know every rule in every country anyways. Mm -hmm. So as long as you position yourself as a decent human being and you're friendly towards everyone you come across, um, it appears that even if you don't obey every rule that they have, they're quite lenient into, you know, accepting that you might have made a mistake. They'll tell you what to do, and then you just make sure that you don't do it again. How did you learn that? You, you mean you, you learned it on purpose, or is it just something you figured out after being there for a while? Yeah, it's it's one of those things that you figure out once you're there, I guess. Like Some people hate crossing borders on motorbikes, where I decided deliberately that I was going to love it. And just with that mindset approaching every border with a massive smile on my face and and thinking it was an opportunity to meet people and to talk about my trip and to talk about their habits and their day and um, make it an, a positive experience, I think got me through a lot of border posts a lot quicker than other people would. Are they interested in you? Like when you get there, do you feel like you're sort of, um, you know, having to really work them or are they actually genuinely interested in you and your story and what you're doing? Um, well, the first border post, it took me um, just as long to get the paperwork sorted as it took me to take photos with all the guards and um, tell my story. So they are definitely genuinely inter interested in what I was doing. Um, and that made crossing borders so easy. And I've heard a few rumors that it might be easier for women than for men, mm. but I do think that your attitude towards crossing borders and towards dealing with all sorts of government officials, um, I think that makes a massive difference, yeah. In that you get back what you sort of put out, you mean, or, or just that... Um, yes. Yeah, so, you, you know, you, you go in with a good attitude and you're going to end up dealing with people in, in a better mood. Yes. Yeah, if you approach someone with a smile on your face, they'll instantly, um, well, unless they're very grumpy, but usually they'll smile, smile back at you and whatever it is that they need from you, they'll ask you in a polite way and not in a grumpy way. If you... Um, approach someone um, angrily and, and annoyed, they will give you that same attitude. They will. One of the other things you had noted was that sort of emotionally you learn to take care of yourself. What does that mean? Yes. Um, I guess 
you know, when, when you grow up, there's always someone there to take care of you. Or, you know, when you're feeling bad, you go and talk to your mum about something or you go to your best friend or, um, and in life we're, we're used to having people around us. We can trust when we're not feeling great. So whether that's a best friend, a partner, a, a parent, there's always someone. And when you go out on these adventures and you're on your own in the middle of nowhere with no phone reception, there isn't. So if you want to talk to someone, you can talk to yourself. And you can do that in two ways. You can talk yourself down and, and be more miserable or you can try to pull yourself out of that misery and, and tell yourself that it will be fine tomorrow. And, you know, even when your bike is broken down or when other things aren't working out and you can't get a visa. And um, I think that's probably the biggest lesson that I learned to um, talk to myself when I was in trouble and not need anyone else to uh, put me back together again. A lot of people talk about, you know, having more confidence, being more comfortable with, their, with other people, especially in particular with travel. You know, if they're, if they're riding with a group, they've got that confidence of if they have to go in somewhere, they've got their friends there to look after their bike, or if something goes wrong, they've got someone there. But I hear a lot of people talk about confidence and how their confidence level actually goes up when they're on their own, when you're forced to deal with it. Did you find that? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. I think... Um, you get used to not knowing how things will turn out. And in the end, they basically turn out well. They always do. So you get a sense of certainty that things will be fine. Whatever struggles you have to go through to get to that point of being fine. Um, and I think that's, that's a large part of the confidence that people get. Um, you dare to go out without knowing whether it's going to end well. And because you dare to do it and because you have a certainty that it will be fine, um, it will be. I don't know how that makes sense, but it's, it's the way it is. So the confidence, for me at least, comes from the fact that you go and do things without knowing what the outcome will be and then the outcome is something positive. And the more you repeat that, the more you believe that it's going to be fine and, and you are confident in the fact that you're going to be good and fine and you're going to have fun. Is part of that when you're when you're out alone in, in a foreign country, sort of learning to roll with what happens? I mean, because you, you said that you, you think that everything will turn out fine, even if there's something difficult you have to go through. I, mean, I know that uh, in Pakistan, you, for instance, you had to get a, a police escort. That's probably something you, you did not want. Um, but do you find you just have to roll with that? Yeah, you become very flexible in um, in how you achieve what you want to do. Like, an, so, and not yes, get bothered by it. Yes, yes, or at least not get too bothered by it. Um, yeah, in Pakistan, I had only a few days to make it up to the Chinese border, and then um, I was in an area there. Everyone who rode there before and told me stories about it, they said, "Yeah, that's fine. You can just go there and ride, and it's safe. It's it's good." Um, and you don't need an escort. So I got into this area and I was stopped and they couldn't actually explain why, but I had to wait and wait and wait until this guy showed up who literally had a T-shirt on with the words police on it, didn't have a gun or didn't have anything that would actually protect me from anything. And he showed up on this moped, a 50cc moped, without a helmet on. 
and I had to follow him for two hours and he was doing 30 kilometers an hour which even on my bike is hard um, and he was there to protect me so basically the only reason that they were giving me a police escort was to uh, to show that the Pakistanis cared about this woman traveling on a motorbike and that they didn't want to um, have anything bad happen to me so then you, you make it to the Chinese border but you, you had something in China as well something to do with a donkey Oh, yeah, that was a bit of a bad situation. So um, in China, we rode with a group of four. And the Chinese are, um, they're not very keen on having foreigners in their country. So we um, we had to really rush from the border to the first check post to uh, get up our passport stamped and everything. Um but they held us up at the border for quite a while and checked our bags and checked us again and held us back and made us wait, etc. So we were in a bit of a rush to actually get to the official checkpoint, the first one. And um, so one of the guys was a little bit ahead and uh, he went around a corner. And when about a minute later, the rest of us turned the corner, we just saw this donkey on the side of the road and... Um, saw a bit of plastic on the road and I was very scared it was him coming off his bike but luckily he did not come off the bike but he did hit the donkey and um, it was Chinese police who didn't speak English and there was some uh, local people who uh, lost the donkey obviously so we were in a bit of a pickle there but (laughs) we got out of it how how did you get out of it um Paid a lot of money for the donkey. <laughs> so how much exactly did you pay for this donkey? <laughs> About $580. $580. I mean, you can get a donkey here for that for that money. I would think a donkey in China would be dirt cheap. Yeah, well, they, they were trying to make us pay double of that, but we literally didn't have anything else. So we just, we scraped all our money together. Um because they took our passports. They took our passports. They. Um, you, you mean as soon as the donkey incident? That's when they took them. Yeah. So with the donkey incident, they took our passports, and there was Chinese police, and no one could understand what anyone was saying. And there was um, one person who could translate between everyone, but you never know what to believe. <laughs> so we were thinking like. People disappear in these areas and no one ever hears from them again. Um, this is probably one of the only moments in the whole trip that I was actually scared. And between the four of us, we were just like, okay, let's let's do everything we can to please these people and let's get the hell out of here. Because they might as well arrest us and put us in some sort of Chinese jail. Um, and, you know, no one ever hears what happened to you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All for the donkey. So I'm not. Oh yeah, all for the donkey. I'm not much of a fear monger here, but that was a bit of a tricky moment. Absolutely. But you overpaid. You clearly overpaid. I mean, you, you got fleeced somehow there. I'm assuming. Yeah, uh, we're not exactly sure what happened, but they started off asking double the, the amount of money that we gave in the end. So. I personally wouldn't pay that much for a donkey, but I would pay that much to make sure that you're not going to Chinese jail. So. <laughs> or double <laughs> if you had it, right? <laughs> I mean, at that point, yeah, you just exactly. want to give whatever they're asking for. 
Yeah, exactly. You um, you all you ran into trouble, and like that sounds like a terrible thing, and it was, I'm sure, at the time. But um, you also had many other incidents where you ran into trouble, and like you said, it always works out. Even that worked out really, didn't it? I mean, you were able to yeah. scrape together the money, and and you guys got to go, like you said, you avoided the Chinese prison. But you also had another one where you ran out of uh, money. Your bank cards didn't work. Yes. Yeah, so when I was in Iran. Um, I had my only real issues with the bike, the bike breaking down when I was um, on my way to Iran and in Iran. Um, and the trouble with Iran is that they are not part of the international system where MasterCard and Visa card and, and all of those kind of internationally recognized uh, banking systems, they, um, they're not part of that. So that means that as a traveler, you have to carry in all your cash. Um, and there are ways to get money in Iran, but it's not easy. So what happened was I had to get the bike fixed one time, had to pay for parts and had to pay for mechanic, et cetera, et cetera. And then went around and it broke down again. And at that point in time, I also figured out that my passport, so the validity on my passport did not allow me to continue traveling through Turkey, which meant I needed a new passport which cost me another lot of money. And then with a broken bike again, I just had $50 to try to fix it. And um, yeah, $50 to try to fix it and make it out of the country, which was another 1,500 kilometers. And obviously uh, you can't buy a new fuel pump for $50. Um, and somehow, I, I, I still don't quite understand how this happened, but I was sitting there with only $50 left and a broken bike and no way of getting out of this country. And then this guy appeared and he was an Iranian guy living in Sydney in Australia. And he said, oh, I can help you out. And basically I could transfer money into his account and he would give me Iranian money and it would all be easy. So it's like this, these people are just sent to help you out. But, but that also works. could set off bells and whistles for people who are paranoid thinking, wait a second, you want me to transfer money into your account and then you're going to pay for this? I mean, there's a certain amount of trust there, isn't there? Um, yes. Uh, did that, and I did think that run through your mind? Not for a second, no. Um, it's You get really good at trusting your gut when you travel like this. And I immediately knew with this guy that I could trust him. Um, and to to say actually Iranian people in general, they are very welcoming, they are very hospitable, they are beautiful and they are they will take care of you as a traveler. It's in their culture and in their blood to help you when they can. So Especially there, I was not afraid of being taken advantage of, no. And you said, and I think it was in this situation, you said you learned to keep the faith and, and in situations where it looks hopeless, you don't ask yourself, why me, why here, why now? Instead, you're asking yourself something positive, like, how do I get out of this? What do I do, need to do next? Yes, for me, I think that was one of the biggest learning lessons when I was trying to fix this motorbike and... Um, um, so the bike, what had actually happened, there was a short circuit, um, in one of the relays 
And of course, I didn't realize that. So it was a short circuit in one of the relays. And every time it rained, every time it was wet, the bike would just play up. And um, there was something with the fuel pump. And it took me days to put together what had happened. Um, and during that time, it was raining. It was gray. I was in a tiny little town on the border of Iran. No one spoke English. And there was no Wi-Fi to be found. So it took me days to literally put myself together and put my act together where I had some internet so I could do some Googling and, and call some people. Um, and during that time, you're just sort of fiddling around with this bike, literally banging my head on the frame going, why, why, why is it not working? And then I had this light bulb moment and I went, well, this is not going to get me anywhere. How about if I, instead of asking why, I start asking how? And so I stopped banging my head on the frame and I stepped back and I just looked at it and I said, how can I fix this? What do I need to make this work? What do I need? How can I get the information? How can I get the skills? How can I get? And, and slowly um, I found some Wi-Fi in a little cafe. I downloaded some spare parts uh, manual I um, contacted a mechanic and he sent me the, the wiring diagram, so for all the electrics. Talked to my dad over the phone a lot. And slowly by asking myself the question, how do I fix it? Um, I started putting together the pieces and managed to at least put the bike together well enough to make it to a big city where I could take it to a mechanic. So in, instead of asking why, why here, why now, why me, asking how really got me out of that situation. So does that work everywhere or does that just work when you're in a foreign place on a trip? I mean, cause you hear this a lot. That's why I asked that. I mean, you know, a lot of people say that, that this sort of thing that, you know, that your positive attitude, you know, works and it brings things towards us, but will it work at home? Yes, absolutely. It's, it might not be as obvious. So I think in a foreign country, these things are more obvious, but it will work at home just as much as it will in any other, in any other country. Did you learn this attitude from motorcycle travel or is this something that you've learned, you know, growing up? No, I learned it um, through going out into these places that I've never been before. So yes, motorcycle traveling. Um, I've probably seen a bit of it before, but it was never ingrained in me as deeply as it has been through the motorcycle traveling. That's the thing that a lot of people fear is that putting yourself out there, well, out of your comfort zone, really. I mean, we talk a lot about that for, on this show is, is putting yourself out of your comfort zone. And yet it just seems like you would come into example after example that every time you talk to somebody who, who does extreme things like yourself, really putting yourself out there totally on your own, you come out so much further ahead. I mean, it just doesn't seem to be a downside. No, except for it costing a bit of money. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, no, the things that you gain out of it as a person and, and the skills, the people skills, the um, the confidence, the, all those things, yeah, it's definitely worth going out and doing these things, absolutely. Well, this trip that we just talked about around Australia made it into a book. You wrote a book about it. You called the book She'll Be Right. Tell us about She'll Be Right. So She'll Be Right is basically the, um, the story of my trip around Australia, um, the trip where I shared a part with my dad, parts with a good friend of mine, 
and did a part of the travel alone as well. And um, what I noticed when I was riding around Asia particularly, a lot of people ask, like, how do you start something like this? You're such a superhero for doing this, and I could never do that. And I started thinking, well, I didn't start out riding across the world. I started out riding this, you know, doing this um, this 10-day trip around Europe and then a little bit, little bit of riding in New Zealand. And then I went, I, I got a bike in Australia and started doing it. So for me, it was basically just all these steps that led up to be doing this big trip. And I already had a lot of blog posts around uh, about my trip around Australia and I thought I needed to tell the story of how do you do a trip like this and not in the sense of, you know, here are 10 things to do when you go on a motorcycle trip, but in an engaging way, which showed that I was not a superhero, which showed that I'm a normal person who just made a couple, you know, slightly less normal decisions. And so I started piecing together that story and that story actually turned into a book. So I think in the spirit of saying that everything will be all right when you um, actually go out and do it, I named the book She'll Be Right, which is uh, an Australian way of saying, yeah, you will be fine. It's all going to work out. It's all going to work out, exactly. I hope to inspire people and to show them that you don't have to be a superhero to do these kind of trips. You just have to, you know, have a bit of common sense and a will to go. That's probably the most important thing. The book is She'll Be Right. And of course, we'll put a link in our show notes. Chantel, great to meet you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Jim. And that was Chantel Simmons. Her book, She'll Be Right, you can find um, on Kindle, at Amazon, Kobo, and iBooks. And of course, again, that link is in our show notes. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. And the Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll fill your flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. It's made in the USA, and it comes with a lifetime warranty. www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. Well, that was part one of our two-part series on riding in extreme conditions. You don't want to miss next week, though. Next week, we're going to deal with riding in the cold and riding in the heat. 
Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using their unique strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. And that has gained them a top reputation for tough, reliable gear. www.greenchiliadv.com That's www.greenchiliadv.com The MotoBreeze chain oiler is powered by wind pressure that automatically adjusts for speed. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers oil to your chain with a felt pad that's mounted on your swing arm, which eliminates the problems of exposed nozzles near your sprockets. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets and forget about the messy spray oil. www.motobreeze.com That's two eyes in there. www.motobreeze.com Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio. And of course, we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and to you, the listener. Thank you very much. Just wanted to put out a reminder there that all these episodes that we do are available to download for free. Go to our website, www.adventureriderradio.com, and you can listen to all of them. You can search through them. You can check for keywords, the whole bit. You can also listen to our Raw show, which is a separate show. You need to subscribe separately. Again, all free to download. That's a monthly show that we do, roundtable discussions uh, about travel. And we have five co-hosts on there other than myself. Again, on the website, just click on the Raw button. Hey, if you like what we're doing and you'd like to help out, there's several ways you can do it. One, you can help spread the word. You could like our, play, our page on Facebook. And of course, you can consider a donation. We've got all kinds of different ways to donate. Anything $10 or more will get you a sticker sent back at you for your bike. Anything $50 or more is going to get you a mention on Raw. That's the other show that we do. We mentioned it right at the start of it. And um, they also have Patreon, which you can sign up for monthly donations if you want to do that. We've sort of built the show on a, a model of advertising and donations to make it work. And um, we can certainly use your help and we appreciate it my name is jim martin now it's time to get out there and ride your bike see you next week hi this is zenith irfan and i am the first pakistani girl to do 3000 kilometers in pakistan and you're listening to adventure rider radio 